Nice. Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation and eventually to get a job. Uh, and this season, we've been doing a series of interviews with my friends and colleagues. And today, I am very happy to welcome on Prashant Kumar. Uh, Prashant is a PhD candidate in history and, uh, and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Prashant. Hey, how's it going, Brendan? I'm good. So, so today, we're going to be talking about something really, really big. And, and it's the, you're, you're, you're working on the history of deep time, right? Right. Can you tell me a little bit about what, what on earth that is? Because I thought, like, I understand what time is, but I, yeah. what deep time and how does that have a history? So, I mean, we take it for granted now that the universe is many billions of years old. but Many of us take it for granted. Many of us take it for granted. I mean, you know, all the people that I'm including in this conversation take it for granted that the universe is billions of years old, right? Yeah. But this is kind of a fairly modern invention. It's maybe about, call it like 70 years old. If you go back to the 19th century, the universe was thought the beginning of the 19th century, a few thousand years old, in line with the biblical account of creation. So my question, broadly speaking, is over that roughly 100, 150-year period from the end of the 18th century until now, how does time expand? And what yeah. are the kind of contortions involved in wrapping our heads around this expansion, this explosion of the time beneath us? Yeah, it's that it's it's really weird to think about how you place human history if you think that time, like the time of all existence, is basically coterminous with like humanity. Like if you think that 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 the universe is only six thousand years old, that makes a very like comfortable, like understandable human-centered universe. But if you think that the universe is like billions of years old. And that humans are just a tiny blip. It it kind of changes how you place humans in the story of everything, right? Right. And so people like David Christian have called this big history, right? The idea that we should retell the story of the universe from the beginning of creation. Um, other people have pointed yeah, he's, out- he's, that, he's, he's the guy who Bill Gates gave a ton of money to, right? Yeah, yeah, a ton of money. So we should, you know, read his shit. Um, yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, other people have pointed out that, you know, it's not often that we do this, right? Like, more often we're comfortable of thinking of the beginning of civilization as, you know, having something to do with the Babylonians, the Near yeah. East. And so, you know, all of these people that are mentioned in the Bible are kind of the groundwork for most blueprints of history. Like, even mm -hmm. today, um, you have the Paleolithic, you have, you know, the kind of what might be called the evolutionary history of humanity, but this is kind of a separate, a brief, a preface to what regular history is. Um, yeah. Like I'm, I'm thinking about my own historical knowledge and like, I know that the, like the history that we know of, like the history that gets to be put into the history bucket, not the prehistory bucket is like 5% of like the time that evolutionarily modern humans existed. But if you 
ask me about any of the 95% of the time that happened before humans developed writing mm-hmm. in agriculture, like I don't know anything. I know there's like the ice age and I know there's dogs. <laughs> like those are the two <laughs> moments of, Oh, and out, like people leaving Africa. Like those are like the three big moments that I know of 95% of human's history. So yeah, you're right. There's, there's, even though we know that deep time exists, it, it, it somehow doesn't, it's not absorbed into our like dated the the way that we talk and think day to day about what history is. Yeah, for sure. And so, but part of the the I suppose the background to what I'm saying is that th- there's a historical reason for this, right? Like the, oh. the the vast epochs that we now deal with are in historical time fairly recent, and hmm. most of the narrative structure that we have for telling history is the holdover from these periods when the universe was thought 6,000 years old. Oh, wow. Part of what I'm doing is going, what did it mean when the universe was still thought 6,000 years old to do cosmology? What did it mean at the very initial point of this large transition, this explosion in the amount of time? What did it mean in that moment to do cosmology? What did it mean to think about the vast stretches beneath us, even when they weren't as vast as they are now. Yeah, like how do you tell a story? Like how do you tell a story about time when it just suddenly gets like far larger than 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 anybody had previously imagined? So yeah, how do you, how do you tell that story? Like, <laughs> like where, how how do you do it? Like, yeah. you, you've, you've set up the magic trick. Show me the bunny uh, coming out yeah. of the hat. Yeah, I mean, so one one way I'm trying to do this personally is by constructing a long durée history that begins with a microhistory, begins with a moment, sets the sets the register at a moment when time is quite manageable. It's about six thousand hmm. years old. You have the creation, you have the fall, you have uh, you know the mosaic. Uh, uh, drift of people around the earth, right? The sons of Moses, uh, Noah, uh, sorry, Shem. Can you help me? Yeah, like like all these these 18th century antiquarians who are going out and learning about the world and they're able to say like to 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 say like oh like the bible like this, this, these groups of people correspond with the people that we learned about in the bible right there's no yeah. surprises the sons of shem are the semites the ha- sons of ham are the africans so on and so forth so each group of people on earth descended from some origin and mm. part of this project in this moment is figuring out how the the physical changes in the earth relate to the movement of people. This is considered one kind of history. So part of what I'm suggesting is what it meant to do cosmology in this moment was something that would now straddle anthropology, earth science, would be a mix of disciplines that we can only really reckon with by dealing with an individual, I think. Okay, so so let me just let me just make sure that I understand everything. So at this moment in the late 18th century that you're talking about, what we what when people did cosmology, they weren't just looking up into the stars and trying to figure out like how 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 big the sun was. What they were also trying to do was tell a story about long-term changes to the earth so that they could describe how different peoples developed, right? 
Right. And it, it was a general project to figure out how the account in Genesis squared with the world that they observed around them. Yeah. And let me just ask a dumb question. Like, yeah. your, your, your question is deep time. Like, that's the big thing that you're trying to understand. Why are you studying cosmology? Like, when I think of cosmology, I just, like, I think of the uh, astronomer uh, who worked in my college and, like, everybody going off to an observatory and dimly looking through a telescope and trying to find Venus or something. Like, that's what I think of. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with time. So... Part of that's a good question. I mean, part of what it means to do cosmology is to observe the heavens, and that's always been true. But you might distinguish between cosmology, which is the study of the universe as it is, and cosmogony, yeah. right? The genesis of the universe. And so I, I would say that what I'm trying to figure out is how these changes in time scales are related to the you know 18th century ideas of the genesis of the universe so i mean okay. it's yeah so 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 like when people imagine different kinds of time scales they imagine a different story for what humanity is yeah okay okay so so how do you study you started you said that you started out with a microhistory well how do you how do you start that out so, I mean, one kind of uncomfortable secret of historical work is that you can't really do anything without an archive. Um, <laughs> yeah. Nobody really wants to talk about that. But like, <laughs> so no. I'll tell you the real story. What happened is I found a, ca a huge cache of documents belonging to this one guy who found his way to India in about 1783. Where was he from? He was from Yorkshire. Okay, so an English guy, yeah. An Englishman. He comes over to India on the suggestion of a friend of his that he could teach mathematics. He was a mathematician in the College of Fort William in Calcutta. And so I started following this guy's paper trail, and I found out that he'd written this 200-page journal which recorded his expeditions all over North India, up and down the Ganges Valley, even as far as the Burmese coast. Oh, wow. And so what was strange about this was that he was a surveyor. He was taking measurements of longitude, latitude. He was providing the raw data that was uh, necessary for map, map, oh, sorry, map making. But he was also an amateur cosmologist or cosmogener. It's just a much more awkward word. But he thought that evidence in India, ancient diagrams of the universe, fossils, all kinds of material evidence pointed to the fact that the Earth's axis had in previous uh, ages been on an entirely different tilt. There had been no seasons. There was one paradise. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do in this chapter is figure out the relationship between science and empire that produced this vision of the world. Oh, wow. So let, let me just like, like unpack a couple of things. So we have this guy. What, what's his name? Reuben Burrow. Reuben Burrow. Reuben Burrow, go, he just hops on a boat to India to teach math at a military college. Is that 
common? Like, or was he a crazy person? He was a difficult person. He, <laughs> he previously, so, I mean, this guy, he was, his dad was a small farmer when he was 18 or 17. I think he walks all the way from Leeds or a town just outside of Leeds to London to take up a clerkship. He, he walks, walks, that takes like weeks. Yeah. And he spends, he spends like, a, uh, I think a pound on the way, which is very <laughs> proud of in his journals. And, uh, he, he's kind of a unique figure in that he manages to fight with everybody. He, due to his mathematical renown is hired by the then astronomer Royal Neville Maskeline. They're carrying out this experiment near this mountain range called Shehalian in Scotland, where they're trying to use pendulums to measure the mean density of the earth. Tons of surveying involved, lots of measurements. Burrow starts getting pissed off at Maskeline because Maskeline is, you know, classic gentleman, deals with abstraction, doesn't really mm. know how to set up the surveys. Burrow lambasts him in print. In print? He's fired. Yeah. And so this kind of pattern repeats. He ends up working as mathematical master in the Tower of London to draftsmen. But then there's a colleague of his who's lying and cheating, stealing money out of a kitty. But this colleague is a friend of a gentleman on the board of ordinance. So he decides to quit. This is how he ends up in India. He pisses a lot of people off. He reminds me a bit of Robert Hooke. Have you have you uh, read any, anything about Robert Hooke? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Robert he, Hooke is a personal hero of his, strangely enough. Oh, really? Robert Hooke's diaries are 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 are, are a, an amazing read. There, there's a printed uh, 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 transcription of them, which you can find uh, in most university libraries. Robert Hooke uh, was a 17th century like virtuoso. He was a poor dude, but like really, really smart. And he was hired as an instrument maker, both uh, to uh, 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 Robert Boyle. Is that is Robert his first name? Yeah. Robert Boyle, who is like a genius scientist and to the Burgeoning Royal Society. And he was a ma- he, he was he was really weird. Like, in addition to that, he would like somebody caught a dolphin in the Thames and Ro- uh, Robert Hooke took it to Garraway's coffee house and did like a public dissection of it to show everybody like what was inside the dolphin but he fought with everyone like everybody ended up doing something wrong or saying something wrong and getting yeah. robert hook pissed off you know like i i you read his diaries and like there will be seven years where he pals around with this guy and discusses scientific stuff and gets drunk with them and has a great friendship and then one entry will just say he was a scoundrel and like then you never hear from him ever again. So it's this, it's this kind of irascible, like guy who's super smart and doesn't know his class. Right. Is that, is that like a good sense of who he is? Yeah, absolutely. He's a, he's an upstart. He's an, he's used mathematics to, you know, insinuate himself into um, I suppose you might call it a class position where he doesn't quite belong. Yeah. And, and, and this sort of thing as well of going of, of, of people who were talented and just didn't quite fit of going off to India in Britain, that was, that was not super unusual. Like if you were no. a smart, ambitious Scotsman or a person who just like 
had talent but didn't have a place to belong, you might go off to India to make your fortune. So so Ruben Burrow and going to India wasn't like it wasn't like him flying off to 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 Mars. He was following a well-worn track towards towards like pursuing a certain kind of ambition. Right? Am I right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I you he he made something like six times what he made in London in um as a, as a mathematical master in Calcutta. So I mean, it, it was it was a it was a gold rush in in some mm. abstract sense. So so let I just want to draw this back. So we have we have Ruben Burrow. He goes off to India for this gold rush. He is making money doing surveying. And 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 that surveying, like who who wants him to do that? Like what's the point of that? He's so making maps? He's making he's providing the data to make maps. So I mean th- at this point there are already a ton of maps of India. The problem is that they are very small. Mm. And when you want to aggregate these small maps, it's very difficult to do unless you have an observatory that serves as a fixed point to combine oh. the maps. Um, yeah, I'm just trying. To, I'm thinking like with paper maps, like if you wanted to walk from like uh, uh, Berkeley, California, over to, to to Oakland or something, and you just had tiny maps and had to place them, you know paper maps on a table to try to draw a line, it would be a really big mess. Yeah, especially if there are different scales or they have yeah. different, you know, uh, missing pieces. It, you may get an incomplete version of, you know, the territory. Um, and so part of the reason he receives this commission is because Nobody can combine all of these maps together. What he proposes to do is take a ton of data with him, astronomical data that gives times for the rising and setting of planets, the eclipses of the satellites of Jupiter, all of these phenomena that occur out in the universe and so can be used to fix time. He takes Mm. data with him and he travels through all of these regions that have previously been mapped. And so in this way, the body of the surveyor becomes an instrument that can stitch these partial views together. Well, and he's and he's doing it by like comparing what, what what's happening out in the sky with his. I'm imagining he has like as he's walking through these places, he has gigantic uh, 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 bags full of books and and charts and stuff like that, right? Yeah, this stuff has uh, weight. It's it yeah. matter, you know. I mean, like. The, the, the way you carry out a survey is you have, uh, let's say you have a table that shows what time planets rise and set in Greenwich, right? That is a fat stack of numbers. You have to carry yeah. that with you because when you observe a planet set, you can look it up and you can see, ah, it's 4.45 in um, you know, London. I know that the planet rotates at this rate. I can figure out how far away London is, knowing that these events occurred simultaneously. So, so, so we have Ruben Burrow, and he's 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 walking throughout India, carrying all these instruments, uh, uh, comparing, you know, observations of stars with what they are in Greenwich, and he's getting paid for it. He's getting paid a decent amount of money, but lots of people are getting paid for it. Uh, uh, work like this. Ruben Burrow is not the only surveyor, mm. but Ruben Burrow seems to be a little different. Like, 
he seems to be daydreaming as he's uh, walking along, right? Right. Like he seems to be thinking about other things as he's doing his work, and that and that's how we can get into this deep history of cosmology. Can you can you tell me a little bit about what he's daydreaming about? Like what is what 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 does he think he's seeing in 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 India? So he thinks he's seeing evidence of the true universal religion. He thinks that in previous epochs when the earth's axis had no tilt and there was a paradise. There were Hindu priests that spread across the earth and diffused knowledge of an original heliocentric system of the universe. And the way he gets here. Oh, wow. This, that's just wild. Like that, that is utterly. So, so he thinks that, 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 that there is a paradise and he's seen it. And it's described by the fact that the earth has no tilt and there are no seasons and Hindu priests spread out from this paradise, spreading not only the true true religion, but the true heliocentric model for the universe. Yeah. And the crazy thing is that (laughs) what he's done here is he stitched together bits of Newton with bits of 17th century cosmology. What he's doing is he's saying that by observing fossils in India, which are caked at heights hundreds of meters above the current sea level, we can figure out that the earth used to be in a different situation, right? And it's, it's a kind of familiar scientific move. I'm using observational evidence to decide between proposed theories. What he's doing is he's suggesting that all of these things are true and Mm. that there is evidence for it in the areas now accessible to British observation and science. So uh, something that you mentioned earlier was that Ruben Burrow represents this moment in in the history of time, maybe one of the last moments where time is something quite manageable, right? Mm-hmm. Like Ruben Burrow can 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 walk along and look at the fossils that are 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 up on top of the the Himalayas and think these fossils are coterminous with a human history, right? Like everything that we're seeing in all the different like geological archives have a tie with human history. Yeah. And we can understand them by combining literary evidence and observations of, of, of the heavens and observations of the natural world, right? Right. And and it seems to me that this is like part of like a there's something going on in the 18th century that seems really exciting with a lot of people doing like massive scientific projects to like do things that 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 seem to us kind of weird that seem very satisfying to them yeah, yeah. like you mentioned that 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 one of burrow's things was one of his first jobs was to measure the mean density of the earth right right <laughs> like that's a wild project like like why would you want to do that like you wake up in the morning and you want to measure the density of the earth another one is that 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 struck me is 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 the story of um uh, 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 the transit of Venus, right? Do you, which which I'm gonna mangle my, my my retelling of it. So correct me when I'm wrong. But uh, 
there's a question about is it's either the distance between the earth and the sun yeah is that the thing that they're trying yeah. so that people are trying you can figure out how big the earth is right yeah. But to figure out how big the sun is, you need to figure out the distance between the Earth and the sun. And somebody realized that you can do this by comparing how long it takes for Venus to cross the sun during whenever it crosses the sun. Right. right. But the problem is it only crosses the sun like once every 70 years. Right. And so there was this project when people figured out that, that this was going to happen of sending observers all around the world with like the most high tech scientific gadgets they could find to observe how long it took for Venus to cross the sun at this very one moment. <laughs> and like this was people's lives. Like there are people who like move off to India for their yeah. entire lives so that they can make this single observation. And why why they do it is that there's like this this the, the, for us we take this data for granted we take for granted that we can like look up on a website and find the mean density of the Earth or we can search Wikipedia and find the distance between the Earth and the Sun but like there seems something really amazing when you're able to find that out and part of that is that it seems that that with with like this more human bounded time that when you discover those sorts of things you're you're getting closer and closer to figuring out everything right yeah i mean you're getting closer to what's called a a cosmic scale in some sense you have distances that are every day you have distances of a blade of grass of human height and what people are slowly starting to do is construct you know greater more godly distances like that between the earth and the sun the diameter of the sun itself and what's interesting is that they begin doing this at a point where the question of the age of the universe is not comfortably settled but its ballpark mm. figure is right so what they're trying to do if you really think about it is figure out some kind of cosmic design all of these distances all of these measures in the universe are elements of you know the the clockmaker god's plan yeah and 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 it's something that humans are able to to appreciate right right but only a certain kind of human people like ruben burrow yeah people like ruben burrow people who are willing to carry out the intellectual exercise of reconciling genesis with observed fact mm. So tell tell me a little bit more about how how Rubenbro does that project in India as he's as he's daydreaming. You said that he he has this big idea that there was a paradisical time when the earth didn't wobble and Hindu priests spread out all over there. Like what was his data for this? Like how did he come and get that the the raw material to make those 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 leaps? So the the key turning point occurs in about I think it's 1789. He's at the northernmost extent of the Ganges near the holy city of Haridwar. And he comes across what he thinks is a map. In fact, it's a um, Jain cosmological diagram of the universe. He interprets it as a kind of polar projection of the northern hemisphere. Mm. And he thinks that this map shows at its center at the Northern Pole, 
the seat of paradise through which the four sacred rivers of Eden passed, right? So he's interpreting what are Indian figural diagrams of, you know, a mythic cosmos as encrypted data in a sense. He thinks of myth, what's so compelling about him and what's so strange, I think, is that he thinks of myth as something that must needs be interpreted. It has some, mm. I mean, in, in some quarters, this is called euhemerism, the idea that the accounts of myth need interpreting, need naturalizing so that they can reveal a truth that was encoded. But, you know, that, that, that position makes sense if you believe in a tidy human-sized universe, which, which Ruben Burroughs certainly thinks of. If you believe in a tidy human-sized universe where there is a kind of like, like generally beneficent watchmaker god who sets everything going, then there are no mysteries. There are no mistakes. Like, yeah. And when you find those, those concordances, it, 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 it's suggestive of this hidden truth. I think may, like maybe it's only for us that it seems weird when we understand the world is like so big and and so unknowable. And we've accepted those things about the world. I mean, I, and I, and I think you're right. I don't think that anybody truly believed that the world wasn't tailor built for us in the moment mm. that we're discussing. And so, you know, in one way that you can tell the history of time is that loss of centrality. I mean, you have the part of the reason historians of science seized on Copernicus and the the story of heliocentrism was that humanity was no longer really central to the depiction of the the description of the universe let's just recap that really quickly in case in case people don't remember uh, tell me about Copernicus so Copernicus comes after Kepler Copernicus basically says that you have Due to the ellipt- due to a bunch of data that people have been observing, no longer should we calculate the movements of the heavens in terms of epicycles. What we should do is think about eclipses arranged at the place. I'm just the dumb the dumb thing. So before Copernicus, people thought Earth is in the center, right? After Copernicus, the sun is in the center. After Copernicus, the sun is in the center. And that's really interesting because it decenters humanity. For sure. And, and that's disturbing. There's some people like uh, uh, Tycho Brahe who try to have it both ways and have like a uh, heliocentric universe, an Earth-centered universe where all the other planets are revolving around the sun. Like yeah. there's something disturbing about that decentering. Right. And yeah. It's something that we try to avoid. It's something that at least in analyses of the history of science, is considered pivotal. Yeah. And, and so this seems like a similar moment, but with time. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting that it takes so long after the decentering in space for a decentering in time to happen. But that's mostly the story that I, I, I'm trying to understand by coming to this like late 18th century moment where it's still possible to think of the Earth as descended in space, but we hmm. are still God's creatures and we still have a baseline in time. Yeah. And we can still, like, it's a cozy time. Like it's a time that you can, you can, you can understand fully. Yeah. There are yeah. suggestions that things might be different. There's a series of lectures 
um, by our mate Robert Hooke, in which he suggests that um, in part because of fossil evidence, in part because of um, the necessary contortions that are required to explain geological phenomena, the Earth may be much older than the biblical account. This doesn't receive that much traction at the time. So, so at the time that Ruben Burrow is making these like massive, what, he he's a ma- every myth is data for him. Everything that he that he that he stumbles across has to have a meaning, and he's able to fit it into this big system that like makes a grand human history is Ruben Burrow weird this time or is he is he of uh, of a piece of his time is everybody doing this sort of thing or is Ruben Burrow uh uh distinctive in some ways a bunch of his friends are doing something similar he was part of this group in Calcutta called the uh royal well the at the time the Asiatic Society there were a group of um British savants who basically gathered Indian information of all sorts, whether it's etymologies, information about plants, astronomical information, um, meteorological data, and tried to form a coherent intellectual picture according to the, you know, um, intellectual precepts of the enlightenment of India, this universal encyclopedic view of the subcontinent was what they aimed for. Mm -hmm. And so Burrow fits quite neatly in that project. So, but he's, he's, he's of a piece of trying to like get all this data, but are other people as, as, as creative as him Are other people drawing in the whole entire history of humankind from this as well. Do they imagine that as possible? So there's a guy called William Jones who was for a while the president of the Royal Asiatic Society. And he's today considered the father of modern uh, linguistics because what he pointed out was certain similarities between Sanskrit, the you know liturgical language of India, and Greek. There was oh, wow. fever for commonalities between classical cultures. At this point, you have to remember that India is thought of as one of the great cultures of antiquity. Nobody really places mm. that much stock in what's happening in the present, but the past they think is full of riches. And it oh yeah, because 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 like Alexander went there. Like Alexander the, went the, there. The class like people knew of India in in ancient Rome. Like it's 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 a big deal. It's a big deal, especially for people who you know before they got to India if they are men of leisure, received a classical education in which India for them is the India of, you know, the epics of, of Latin and ancient Greek. And so Jones makes this startling discovery, which like is still, if, if people don't know about it, it's, it's striking that European languages are related to uh, many Indian languages. We're, we're all part of a big Indo-European language group. Um, and there's some similar words, like uh, my favorite one is yoga. Like the 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 root word for yoga uh, is is related to uh, 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 the word for yoke, to yoke something together and to yoga something together from a similar Indo-European <laughs> root. So Jones discovers that, it, like this all. If I was living in the 18th century, I would totally think that everything was connected too. Like suddenly we're able to measure the, dis- the the density of the earth and the distance between the earth and the sun, and like here we are, proof that that the 
this this far off distant alien place is is it has a, a history neatly tied up with with uh, something more domestic. Yeah, I mean, part of the project is to prove that the British conquest of India was a return of some ancient people to the original, you know, home of of theirs. Um, so, so is is Reuben Burrow the last of his kind? Is this like the last moment that somebody can imagine this? I, I want to zoom out a little bit and think about what we talked about at the beginning. This 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 history of time itself. Like, is uh, how does Burrow's um, ability to imagine a complete history that 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 unites human history? astronomical uh, observations, anthropological observations, and just tie a bow around it. Like, is that going to end soon? Are people laughing at him behind his back? Or is this something that keeps on going into the 19th century? It's something that keeps on going, but this is where one has to juggle the particularities of a moment. I mean, in part, he is the, you know, he's relying on patronage from um, a guy called Warren Hastings, who has an appetite for this kind of scholarly study of the subcontinent. Warren Hastings gets involved in a huge controversy around 1784 and is recalled in 1785. After this point, Barrow kind of, he loses a lot of the initial kind of backing that he has. He... Sorry, I lost the track of what we were saying. Well, so, 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 so I'm wondering how, like, is Burrow go like, like, like this micro history of Burrow's encounter with uh, these new. So, part of your story is that you have Burrow going off to India, encountering all these new data sources, and doing something kind of amazing with them. Right. He is. He makes this incredibly creative, wild. Uh, deep history. He's, he's able to explain the entire history of, of humanity and the universe and religion in like, in a cup, in like a tiny little thing. Yeah. Right. And you're, you're opening your tale of deep history with this to show us this, this moment where you can have a, 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 a knowable, manageable sense of time. And I'm wondering, where's the fulcrum? Where does that start to end? Are pe- we have Robert Hooke right. saying in the 17th century that things might be a bit longer, but Robert Hooke says a lot of things. Sure. You know, he 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 rants about how all plants are female, and like, you know, he he he's a man of many enthusiasms. But I and but it seems at this time in 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 the 1780s and 90s in India. A lot of of Reuben Burroughs' friends and acquaintances are also similarly allied in this project of being able to understand everything. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder when 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 does that when does that end and how does it end? It ends personally for Burrow when when so part of your your answer was that like to do this, Burrow needed sources of patronage. Burrow needed boosters. He needed he needed to to tell people how cool he was, to show people how how good a job he was doing, and to get them to give him money. And he loses his key booster. He loses his key booster, and in some ways, the moment that made everything possible gets shut down. 
after about 1800. After about 1800, there's no significant opposition to British occupation in India. And there is a shift in tone. No longer do Hmm. people really want to use Indian knowledge systems to figure out a theory of everything, a key to all mythologies. What they start thinking is that Indian knowledge is something worthy of being embalmed. It's something Hmm. worthy of being packaged, understood, pulled apart, and put into its proper place in an evolutionary series of human knowledge, right? So what disappears is this moment in which everything is coeval and everything can be used to understand everything else. Suddenly there is a hierarchy to this shit and it becomes possible for Indian knowledge to occupy that lower stratum. It doesn't start to affect cosmology. It's, at best, a view into humanity's past. Yeah, now, now, so that's really interesting. Is there a hierarchy? Does this hierarchy develop because people's idea of, 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 of time expands? Is it that, like, you're able to have... Because one of the stories that I could tell with this is that uh, a hierarchy develops because people in, in the West, and particularly in Britain, think that they have it all figured out in a new way that they're doing something new to the future that is distinct from everything else. You know, they, 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 they do a similar move with, with the uh, uh, classical knowledge. Um, you know, people in 1700s would read their Cicero to learn how to live their life, right? right? Like they would uh, uh, understand that to be a good politician, you need to read the classics, not because they were like, good social capital, but because they were the best at doing politics and you could learn from them. By 1800, my sense is that when people read the classics, it was just kind of because it was it was what was done. There was a sense that there was something something new on the horizon, that there were 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 railroads and steam engines and and mass-produced goods. So like is is this move to put a hierarchy of different knowledge systems in different and, and, and different times. Is that part of like the opening up of, of the future or, or, or does it have not, am I wrong? And it has nothing to do with the scope of time. This is where like, honestly, I feel like you could choose your explanation to some extent. Like it, <laughs> I mean, because that's a very nice way of telling me I'm wrong. No, I think it, <laughs> I think it does have a lot. I think, look, I, I think the encounter between, um, what you might call biblical sacred history, the 6,000 year span and larger extensive time. I mean, in Indian cosmology, it's technically endless, but the age in which we now exist is 400,000, 4,320,000 years, right? This is a huge span of time to encounter in the 1780s. People go, well, how do we, what do we do with this? A bunch of people start dividing things by a thousand you get about 4,000 years, you can add 2,000 to that, some arguments. What starts to happen is there's a loss of confidence, I think, in the biblical account of creation as a result of the, the, the contact with deep time that may have other origins. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we're like, like it's only it's in the middle of the nineteenth century that people start to discover fossilized dinosaurs and and start to 
uh, understand that that extinction was a thing that could actually happen. Like in the 18th century, people didn't believe that extinction was possible. Yeah. Right. Like they thought that God created all the animals and that it was it was a beneficent universe made for humanity and no animal could be made extinct in part because every animal had to have its use. Right. Right. Like every animal was useful. And so if, if, if one went extinct, it would mean it would be no longer a perfect world. Humans would lose their tool. But in the 19th century, that changes. Right. Why do you think that is? Is it, is it, I, I think, you know, being the, 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 the materialist that I am, it's just because of the steam engine. Like the world gets bigger. Like, but, but what do you, what do you think? Why do you think, why do you think that, that, that change happens? It's difficult to say. I mean, go, go on about the steam engine. I'm interested. Do you think that that it has to do with shrinking perception of distance? Yeah, I think I think that um, there in the 19th century it begins to become much more much easier for people to travel great distances and great speeds. Yeah. Um, they are, and, and, and this doesn't just mean that people can go off and be tourists. It means that their daily lives are hooked up to a vastly different kind of, of economy that is in some ways more mysterious and more attenuated. So like in the 18th century, like a lot of economy, like there's long distance trade, but a lot of economy like is, is really local, like. You, you can get your grain from like a couple hundred miles away, but that's about it. In the 19th century, most of of of, of how people are getting their food and how people are, are are working is spread out across incredibly long distances. Like people in the in 19th century England get their grain not only from a place like Poland, which is super far away, but from Australia. Yeah. And I think that there's like a, it, the world becomes a lot less of a manageable and understandable place at that time for anybody. Like it's it's possible in the 18th century to imagine like an understandable world because there's less to understand. Does that make sense? Maybe that's bullshit. I think it's in the 18th century. The 18th century seems possessed of this kind of sense of wonder that yeah I don't see in the 19th century and. I agree with what you're saying for the latter half of the century, but I mean, just in reference to what I was talking about before, about this idea that Indian knowledge is something to be embalmed, this is already current by about the 1830s, right? This precedes, you know, widespread train travel. It precedes the telegraph. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think like some of what you're talking about is independent of the technological advances, which would only become, you know, generally like, like truly transformative by the end of the century or at least the second half. So something that seems to be happening here, like in this, as, as the scope of time changes, as you get from like a comfy time in the 18th century to like a much more distant time in the, in the 19th century is that it, it seems to me like people lose the possibility of 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 perfecting the world like in the 18th century one of the things that kind of gets charming and funny is that like everybody's trying to make the world perfect like if you read like Linnaeus like the 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 botanist who made like the Linnaean system of classification he thinks that the world can be perfect and that it's like human's duty to make it perfect like it's human's duty to like 
go out and to gather all the plants of the earth and bring them together and breed them and grow them because like it's possible to make a world without stress or harm. But in the 19th century, that seems like less and less possible. Um, do you think that this reading is, 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 is apt? Does it have something to do with the expanding horizon of time that you're, that you're studying? I think it's it's definitely what I'm seeing, but even in the 18th century, I think we have this idea that the world has fallen and that we can reclaim this fallen world by scraps of the ancients. Yeah. And I think it's it's partially like related to what exactly what you're saying is the fact that Nobody really quite believes that by the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but that lets, like, you think that that would be a good thing that people don't believe that the world can be re- remade by scraps. But something that you're talking about, like, with, with the devaluing of Indian knowledge is this thing that, that, that becomes destructive in liberal modernity in the 20th century, where, like, you have the sense that, that okay, there, we, are, we are not able to, to, to recreate a, uh, an Eden after the fall. We're not able to reassemble all the scraps of knowledge that that God left for us. But what we can do is we can make a new human kind of paradise. But that new human kind of paradise relies only on a particular sort of knowledge, right? It only it relies on like people like Reuben Burroughs' great grandson or whatever, like scientists mm. and planners and engineers and capitalists, right? Like. They like in in understanding that the world is broken and never has been whole, but still holding on to this idea that there can be a, a a world that can be made whole. They like turn their backs on other kinds of knowledge. It, I'm interested in which kinds of knowledge you think contribute to this project. I think that it is uh, uh, science and engineering. Um, you know the people who the 19th century uh, 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 wrote hagiographies about, like uh, pick up. Uh, uh, there's a a um, a writer in the 19th century called Samuel Smiles uh, who uh, wrote a uh, uh, a gigantic collection of biographies of of great English people, and a lot of them are engineers who do think fantastic things like building canals and bridges and conquering yeah. nature. Uh, I think I think it's it's and it's I it's less like a certain like set of people who are making propositional knowledge like it's less like a bunch of scientists and more like people the the project of 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 modernization of building factories of selling stuff of 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 paving streets right do you buy this regularizing and rationalizing every aspect of life yeah but 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 in a particular way yeah yeah yeah, the 18th century doesn't have much appetite for that. I mean, they have improvement. They they think that everything can be improved, but they but but the source, like how you get to to understand that improvement's different, or it seems to be different. Do you think there's just more money kicking around, or power has been centralized over the course of the 18th century to the extent that the 19th century can carry out visions that? to the 18th century are unimaginable yeah i think i think it's physical i i i definitely think it's power uh i don't think it's it's um like social power i think it's physical power 
I think that you can just do a whole bunch more stuff, like bigger things that kind of that 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 give people a sense of the sublime in a way that 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 daydreaming about ancient utopias cannot. Like, you know, the first passenger railway, like the first time that 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 people paid to sit in a railway car was done by tourists who were doing it as like a kind of roller coaster ride because it was so amazing to ride in this new machine. Like the, there's with, with the rise of, of steam power and the greater availability of gunpowder and all like, like humans just have more physical power. They can blast open um, uh, 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 seabeds to make artificial harbors. They can make gigantic steel bridges in ways that nobody else was ever able to. That's that, I, I think that there's something about having that ability of seeing that like definitive mastery over nature that that changes the way that people imagine the world like you still have like like think of how darkness changes from the 18th yeah. and 19th centuries like in the 18th century like everybody like has to experience dark like they have to experience weather in a way that like is different like you don't have gas lights everything's like tallow or or, or candles like dark still impinges on your daily life but like in the 19th century, you start to be able to like really fight back against natural rhythms in a way that allows you to can, can, can imagine that humans are 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 more are more powerful. Maybe it's that like even as humans are being decentered in in time and space, like over the 19th century, they're they're being centered as far as power goes. And the ability to intervene in the environment is almost. And at least in hindsight, it seems compensatory, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They 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 might be just a blip in 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 global time, but but they're able to do they're able to sh- shape the world in a way that nothing else ever has been able to shape the world. Yeah. And then, but then, but then, like the value becomes whoever's able to be be doing that shaping, like. Those forms of knowledge that didn't that didn't come up with steam engines and giant giant uh, 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 bursts of TNT are 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 less valuable and become something to be mummified. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, something to be appreciated, something aestheticized. Yeah. So 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 like let's just so, like like tell us a little bit about the end of your story. Like how do we, you start off with Ruben Burrow? This 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 micro history. Just give us like a a a, a, a like just like a what happens in the rest of the dissertation. You tell us this this story about time. How do we get to a modern sense of deep time? So this is something I'm still figuring out. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's well, 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 let's let's give us our our our, our endpoint. Describe for us like the 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 ending of the story then. The ending of the story is in 1924 when Einstein rings up the Kodaikanal Solar Observatory, which has just carried out a bunch of experiments to confirm his theory of general relativity. And the question Einstein asks John Evershed is, can you trust your observers? Mm. They're Indian. Can you trust them? 
effectively what's happened over the century from Ruben Burrow to Einstein is that that entire cosmological project has become embedded in these subcontinent spanning technical systems. Yeah. And what was possible in an individual, the theorization of, you know, the universe's beginning is something that is the product of a vast world straddling cosmological system by the end yeah. of, uh, you know, this period I'm thinking of. And that world straddling cosmological system is showing a very different universe. An entirely different universe. And it's, it, it the, the that picture doesn't it doesn't it isn't generated by any one mind it's mm. the product of massive collective distributed observational networks well and and what does it mean to you for that change to happen like like what does it mean that that we live now in kind of an inhuman time that 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 our, our our idea of the age of the universe is just so vastly different than our our idea of the uh, of of the scope of human human uh, activity. I mean, it's it's a weird irony, right? That like this totally depersonalized system of imperial observation should give you a totally depersonalized universe. Yeah, there's some, and it, that this isn't to say that I disbelieve. <laughs> right? But, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're not you're not saying you're not advocating for a six thousand year earth. No, nor am I advocating for, you know, four yugas and a, a cosmological <laughs> uh that that ends with the Kalki avatar coming down upon a white horse and vanquishing <laughs> a demon, right? Like I mean this isn't an option anymore. Yeah. But there is something for me in this idea of Uchronia of other times. And the more I get into thinking about this, the more I feel that there are other pasts pulling beneath the surface of what's actually happened. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It, tell, tell us more. Give us an example. Like I can, I can, I can sense that, but just, 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 just unpack it a little bit. Ruben Burrow's moment is a juncture. Had, had he not died, yeah. on a barge in Bihar in 1792, had Warren Hastings not been impeached and sent back, you could imagine Burrow having got an observatory and having taken astronomical science along an entirely different antiquarian route. Yeah. Yeah, where, where, where the astronomers would be hanging out with the classicists. But that never happens. And, yeah. And this is sort of what I mean, that like – the reason I am interested in this dude is that there's something about him that recaptures a sense of path dependency of the yeah. fact that like, this is all just a fucking mess and shit happened one way, but all of this shit depended on tiny, tiny little other circumstantial things. Do you know what I mean? There's yeah. And there's, there's, there's a funny thing that happens when you read a person like Ruben Burrow. At first you find like people being wrong about science laughable. Like, when I first read Hook's diaries and he like writes for pages and pages and pages about how all vegetables are female and how everybody who thinks that a vegetable isn't female is an idiot. Like you laugh at him, but like there, then you get like, there's like an act of sympathy for like, like going back in time and imagining what a possible future it was if Ruben Burrow was successful. Right. Yeah. Which is, which is different. And it, 
Yeah. And it's somehow hopeful, right? I mean, like the, the other element to this is that what Burrow is suggesting is that the reason that our age has fallen is that the earth's axis has moved and caused us to leave paradise. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it, it's not because of the earth's axis anymore, but we've fucking left paradise. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I, 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 the deep, the, it's funny. We have a deep sense of time right now. Like we have like a, a, a sense that human history has, has, has been much greater than anybody else. Anybody has previously been able to imagine, but we no longer have a sense of a deep future. No. You know, like 50 years ago, like you could talk with, with modernization theorists and they would tell you that the future would be fantastic with factories and high standards of living. You could talk with Marxists and they would tell you about the like inevitable victory of the proletariat. Everybody could imagine like a future. And now I don't think any, nobody can imagine a good future. Even, even right now in like the American political debate, like the left is all about just like staving off chaos. There's no like sense of a redemptive utopia on the horizon, even though we know that humanity is going to probably exist for a couple thousand more years. We don't, we don't, there's no way to imagine a story of that anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, uh, a few months ago as a way of procrastinating, I got obsessed with this thing called the 4.2 kilo year event. The 4.2 kilo year. Tell us, I've never heard of that before. The 4.2 kilo year event occurred 4,200 years ago. And it was a general climate change across the tropics. It supposedly caused the fall of the old kingdom in Egypt. It caused Babylon to fall. It caused the Indus Valley civilization to fall. And you have a host of small papers in anthropology that show that in the initial phases, there was a move towards urbanization. People clustered. But then the urban formations got too dense, couldn't support the population movement, and started to collapse. And, you know, I, I started to become obsessed with this literature of end times, right? But modern end times. We are now at the point in civilization where we can imagine our fall in relation to previous falls, right? I mean, some people have gone even farther and suggested that this 4.2 kilo year event is the flood, right? Yeah. Yeah. And if it is, in fact, even the presence of that suggestion suggests that what Ruben Burrow was concerned with hasn't gone away. It's just transformed. Tell, tell, unpack that a little bit. What, 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 how, how is it transformed? We are still interested in the movements of people, and we're still interested in how things will end up. Uh, in part, one way of studying what will happen in the future as the Earth warms is by studying comparable events in the past. Yeah. What Oro was doing was he was trying to understand the movement of knowledge, which is not something we're explicitly concerned with, but he was trying to understand how people moved in response to the God-given end times. <laughs> yeah. And, Man. you know, like we're in a moment that at least, you know, seems a kind of end times, at least for this this mode of civilization we're in. It's who, I don't know who said it's easier to imagine the end of civilization than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, but yeah, this is something coordinate. 
Yeah. Well, well, thank, thank you very much for joining us today, Prashant. Um, I have to give thanks to to you for coming on the show, to Duncan Barton for 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 doing our art, and for uh, Jonathan Lear for doing our music. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, uh, and do all those things that you do uh, with pieces of media that you like. I have to give a special shout out to all of the in-laws out there. My mother-in-law listens to every show and tells mm-hmm. her friends you should take her uh, example. Um, and I've also heard that Sarah Stoller's uh, father-in-law has listened to the show, and I hope that he continues to do that. So I'm going to give a shout out to Mr. Hayden. Um, thank you very much, Prashant. Um, please check the website at historian.live. We'll have uh, show notes and hopefully book lists. Um, and we'll speak to you uh, next Tuesday. Thank you.